down about. Hey, it's me again, your host, Charlie Stone, and this is the Whatever Podcast. Um, if I sound a little different this week, it's because I have a thing on the side of my tongue. You know, those uh, inflated taste buds or sores that you can get on your tongue that I don't really know what causes them. Maybe I bit it. Maybe I had something too hot and it burned my tongue. Maybe it's just too many sour gummy worms. Whoever, I don't know. I don't know. But sometimes it rubs against the side of my teeth and it hurts. So if I talk a little bit differently, that's that's why. Um, yeah. And I have a little bit of uh, Arizona tea with me. So if I take a pause, it's because I'm sipping on this sweet Arizona tea. Not a sponsorship, but, you know, Arizona, if you, if you wanted to sponsor me. I would, I would love that, frankly. Um, last week, we talked about the mysterious figure known as Bigfoot. And I guess we figured out that he is definitively undefinable. And I, I didn't really get into this last week. Uh, do I believe in Bigfoot personally? Now, that's a little complicated because... I guess I'm a Bigfoot agnostic. I would love to believe that there is a hairy man in the woods and sometimes he comes out for photographs. Um, and I'd love to know that he's out there. It would, ma it would make me feel secure. But there's really just no proof. So I don't, I don't know is my answer. I don't know. Um... Thank you for all the engagement and listens on both Spotify and Apple Podcasts. I really, truly appreciate it from the bottom of my heart. I hope you enjoyed it, and I really hope that this episode is as good or better than the last episode, because that's really the point, isn't it? Um, on a side note, I would like to thank all of my listeners in other countries, which is so crazy to think about. Um, apparently, I have three listeners in Belgium. And one listener in a small village in Nepal. Now, this is either, uh, th this is one of three things. This is either the Yeti making sure that I am properly representing it. Uh, and I, I hope I did, Mr. Yeti, Mrs. Yeti. I don't know. I didn't mean to presume. Or it is a random person in Nepal that found my podcast and really wanted to listen to it. In that case, thank you. Um, I don't know what drew you to the whatever podcast with Charlie Stone, but I hope you liked it. Or third, it's someone with a VPN. Um, and I think this is the most likely, however uh, bummed that makes me. It's still another listener, and I'm excited about that, but that just means that I'm not really in Nepal and you know, who doesn't want to be in Nepal? Am I right? Anyway, by now, you've probably seen the title. So you know that we're talking about zombies. I can't tell you how much zombie literature and media I've consumed, but I can tell you that I have the entire The Walking Dead series from Image Comics uh, at my home. It's a lot of books. They're very thick. Um, I really enjoyed The Last of Us, both the original video game and the Pedro Pascal series. I didn't enjoy two as much, and I think that's a criticism that they've gotten a lot from from critics and people playing the game. The second one, not as good. 
And one of my favorite movies of all time is Toy Story 2. Now, that doesn't have anything to do with zombies per se. I just thought that you would want to know that. Um, quite honestly, I might do an episode on Disney and how it's a cartoonishly huge and somewhat unethical entertainment empire. But I had Toy Story 2 on repeat on DVD as a kid um, before I knew anything about society or monopolies. Um, and I don't want to get too political right off the bat. Uh, I guess I just have like a mouse-shaped chip on my shoulder. Anywho, uh, into the episode. Uh, I would like to introduce a new segment that I want to do more often. Um, it's called... Let me tell you what it is first. It's where I write down my initial thoughts before I get into the research. Um, I've written this particular part that I'm about to read on March 19th at 3.15 p.m. Okay, you got me. It was 3.16 p.m. I didn't mean to lie to you, I swear. I'll never do it again. Uh, but what do I call it? Maybe... What do I know? So, zombies have been around for a while, and they come from African folklore and rituals, and the modern-day depiction of zombies comes from the island nation of Haiti. Vodou, or Vodun, never, never voodoo, because they're completely different things, is a religion that is far different than the Western idea of Christianity, and I will get into what practitioners of Vodun get into later, because... I don't know a whole lot just yet. Anyway, uh, people practicing Vodun could put somebody into a state of something like hypnosis, and the hypnotized person would be susceptible to suggestion and essentially become a living dead person. People from Western civilization found this out, and they kind of freaked out, because honestly, that's pretty creepy. It's most likely because they didn't really know what was happening, because... That's usually the root of fear when it comes to people different from ourselves, isn't it? The name I think of when I think about zombies is George A. Romero, the creator of the Living Dead series, which popularized the zombie as we know it today. Night of the Living Dead is a cult classic film and a must-watch for fans of any type of zombie media, because while it's actually pretty tame by today's horror movie standards, it's still an excellent commentary on race, society, relationships, and, most importantly, dead folks who eat people. Well, I guess that's what I know. Okay, that's all I'm going to do as a forward to this episode, and I'm definitely going to expand on several of the ideas I just mentioned just now. And a lot of what I said was incorrect, um, mainly because I hadn't done the research yet and I was going off of preconceived notions that I had about several things that I just mentioned, especially uh, Vodun. Um, I didn't have a whole lot of knowledge about what it actually is. Um, and what I did know comes from uh, movies and stuff. Um, and I know that's not, I know that's not like a, a great way to learn things especially when it comes to things that are alien to the Western world. But that's just where I had all of my preconceived notions. Okay, 
first I want to examine Vodo or Vodou and where it all began. So before the French and other European colonists, the Carib and Arawak people inhabited the island that is now shared between Haiti and the Dominican Republic. Once the French arrived, they named the place the place Saint-Domingue and got most of the land from Spain, who had technically gotten there first, and named it Hispaniola. In the late 17th century, things really started moving and labor was rapidly expanding. You know, sometimes I wonder if European colonists realized that the native people were human beings too, because every story I hear about French, Spanish, or English colonists interacting with the native populations, they turn out badly, um, usually for one side more than the other. When the invading colonists had run the native population ragged, they needed another workforce. Wouldn't you know it, the slave trade in Africa was extremely popular in the day, so the French decided to send in a new workforce to the island. I'm just going to give a disclaimer here. I know that the French weren't the only colonists in Saint-Domingue, but they were the largest group in connection with modern-day Haiti, and to this day, French is one of the most spoken languages in Haiti, so I'm going to be focusing on the French for right now. Um, if that's okay with you guys. It is? Okay, cool. When African slaves were brought to the Catholic colony, a process called syncretism happened, which is actually kind of interesting to me. I've actually written a paper on it for a class at uh, the school I go to. So... <coughs> Syncretism is the process of blending together cultures, religions, or thoughts, and it happens a lot with Christianity. As the religion was spread throughout most of Western Europe after the fall of Rome, cultures were less advanced militarily were forced to accept Christianity or die, which is really a great look for the church. The African slaves were taught Christianity, but still wanted to hold on to their own religions as well, so the religions of West and Central Africa were blended with Catholicism, and Vodou was born. Unfortunately, there isn't much on the web about what the basis of the African portion of Vodou is about, but I did find that the word itself means spirit or ghost in the native tongue of Benin, a French African country. Vodou is monotheistic, meaning that practitioners worship the Christian god. Uh, monotheistic doesn't mean specifically Christian, it just means one god. Uh, but there is much more emphasis on ghosts or spirits inhabiting the mortal plane, and people offer sacrifices and rituals to these spirits for good luck and protection and stuff. These spirits are called Iwa, and through syncretism, they have become entangled with the Catholic saints, so are sort of the same things. Um, keep in mind that I am far from an expert. So if I get anything wrong, I do apologize. This is information that I'm getting from mainly Encyclopedia Britannica and other online sources. So, you know, have a little patience with me, I guess, um, because I'm explaining something that I don't exactly understand myself. If you have information about Vodou, um that you would like me to know, you can send in an email at charlesstone075 at gmail.com. I would be happy to have you explain it to me because then I would know more. And that's honestly the goal. So eventually the people of Haiti rose up against France, one of the most powerful empires in the world at the time. And 
actually won. In 1803, France withdrew from the island after a long and bloody struggle, and in 1804, the the nation became officially free, even if they were now under a dictatorship. I'm, I'm not really here to talk about Haitian politics. I just wanted to bring this up to say that some people who knew about the Haitian culture believed that Vodou had something to do with the incredible victory. Vodou reached mainland America as slaves from Haiti arrived in French-controlled Louisiana and, most notably, New Orleans. Anyone who's been to the Big Easy can clearly see Vodou influences from tourist shops to artwork around the city. Unlike most people unacquainted with the actual practices of Vodou, it's not all about dolls filled with pins or sacrificing live chickens and spooky dances around a raging bonfire. Now, finding a straight answer on what exactly a Haitian zombie, that's zombie with no E, is. So I'm going to do some guesswork. Since Vodou is about spirits, a zombie would be a dead person who has been reanimated and filled with maybe another spirit who was previously unseen. Other articles I have seen say that a zombie is someone who has died and been resurrected as a mindless shell of who they once were via black magic. Other sources say that there's nothing really supernatural about Haitian zombies, and they are living people who have been drugged with something from scopolamine, used to prevent nausea during surgery, to pufferfish toxin. Any way you define what a classic Haitian zombie is, they usually serve a few purposes. One, they're used for free labor without concern for hurting a living person. If a voodoo priest or priestess can control a bunch of corpses, you know, who cares about their well-being? They're already dead. The second purpose I've been seeing is the carrying out of evil or dangerous tasks. A Haitian zombie presumably can't feel pain and probably doesn't have a conscience, so no worries there either. Um, this second purpose, the dirty work of priests, has been used by those uninitiated with voodoo practices for centuries. Again, people fear what they don't or they don't know or can't explain, so an undead servant would inspire fear and concern. Zombification has always has also been cited as an allegory for colonialism, since the bodies of the slaves brought to Haiti belonged to their masters, but their souls didn't. The souls could not escape, however, except in death. So, really, the Haitian zombie is its own thing because of the oppression and stuff that was happening in Haiti at the time. Um... And it's, it's an allegory for the unescapable work that they were forced to do for these people who weren't doing anything themselves. It's, it's very interesting. It's very depressing to think about. And it's frankly very important to history uh, so that we don't repeat this again. Um, from 1915 to 1934, America occupied Haiti and soldiers and journalists went back and forth from the island. Between Haitian culture and voodoo influences already in America, zombies began to gain traction. In 1929, William Seabrook wrote a memoir called The Magic Island, in which he detailed what he thought voodoo was, strange, sensual, and scary. He details seeing people who looked dead working in the fields and calls them zombies, and 
this is what starts the zombie ball, the zomball, if you will, rolling. It was only a matter of time until Hollywood jumped on the zombie train with the 1932 feature-length film White Zombie starring horror legend Bela Lugosi, who also famously played Count Dracula. Now, um, I'm going to give you a synopsis of the movie, but keep in mind that I've never seen it myself. So this is from what I've been able to gather from IMDb and Wikipedia and other synopses of the movie without actually having seen it. So in the movie, Charles Beaumont, a really weird fella, proposes to the girl he likes, Madeline Short, and she says no. Aw. Well, the obvious thing would not be to take no for an answer, uh, of course, so Beaumont goes to a quote-unquote witch doctor named, get this, Murder Legendre, played by Bella Lugosi. Uh, Beaumont wants to kill Madeline, bring her back as a mindless zombie, and be with her forever. Still a solid plan so far. I see no, uh, thing wrong with this. Turns out that Dr. Murder likes Madeline too, so he kills and brings her back, but he keeps her under his control. Now, obviously, obviously, Murder has a sugarcane farm, which is operated via zombie labor. He also owns a really creepy castle on a cliff, which probably won't come into play, right? Charles starts to regret killing and turning Madeline into a zombie, and starts to notice that, uh-oh, he's becoming sort of zombie-like himself. Madeline's fiancé, who she chose over Charles, comes to Murder's castle to rescue his love and knocks Murder out. Murder, being unconscious, loses control of all his zombies, who all fall off of that cliff that I mentioned earlier. Charles pushes murder off of the cliff and then falls off himself, being murdered himself and also murder. He was murder's murderer. After murder's murderer, perpetrated by Charles, murderer's murderer, <laughs> Madeline comes out of the zombie spell and everything's okay again. If you're thinking to yourself that I just said murder a whole lot, you're right. I thought it was funny. Uh, this, obviously, this sounds very different from most zombie media in recent history, especially since the zombies didn't really try to eat anybody, and especially since somebody breaks out of the zombie mindset and is a normal person again. White zombie was a cultural phenomenon, not, not just because it was the first zombie movie, but it showed the zombification process happening to white folks, which frightened the heck out of white folks at the time. The first zombie on screen was, in fact, white. And this is important because the notion of zombies, which was limited at the time, was purely a threat to Haitian people. But this movie made the idea more widely applicable. The first piece of zombie literature was The House in the Magnolias by August Derleth, published in Strange Tales of Mystery and Terror in 1932. In this short story, a guy finds a beautiful plantation in Louisiana that he wants to paint. He falls for a Creole woman and decides to stay there, but weird stuff starts to happen, including noises in the fields at night and groaning and shambling footsteps coming from the attic at night. Spoiler, it's zombies. I haven't read this one yet, but I kind of really want to. The real zombie craze in America and the rest of the world started when an independent film called Night of the Living Dead, written by George A. Romero and John Russo, came out in 1968. 
The film was shot with just about $114,000, which translates to just under a million in today's money, but it ended up making $30 million, which translates to about $250 million today. The black-and-white film only lasts about 90 minutes, but delivers one of the all-time classic zombie stories, a bunch of survivors are trapped in a house together, surrounded by the dead. Watching it today, it's very cheesy, and the special effects are questionable at best, but in the most positive way. It's endearing in an age when most special effects are digitally done. Now, I don't want to spoil anything for you if you haven't seen it, but it's been more than half a century since it was released, so that one's kind of on you. All I'll say is that there is an atmosphere of utter helplessness throughout the movie, and the ending is a massive gut punch to the audience who's rooting for a happy ending. We don't get one. This film rocketed George A. Romero to fame, and he went on to make five more dead movies, Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, Land of the Dead, Diary of the Dead, and Survival of the Dead. Um, all of these are about zombies. So some of them seem to blend together. But Dawn of the Dead has been called one of the most important horror movies of all time, especially in the zombie genre. Survivors are locked in a shopping mall full of dead people. Unfortunately, due to copyright stuff that I don't really understand, Dawn of the Dead, the original 1978 version, isn't available to stream anywhere online. If you're really curious, Zack Snyder did remake the film in 2004, and from what I've read, it holds up pretty well. Romero did something that had never been done up to that point with the creatures he called ghouls in his film. He made them slow, shuffling corpses, not unlike the Haitian zombies, but he gave them the defining characteristic of zombies today. He made them hunger for the flesh of the living. This would go on to be the motivation behind the zombies in his six-film series and the majority of zombie media for the remainder of time. Sure. Romero didn't invent undead creatures who hunger for human, but he did popularize them. In interviews, Romero has said that he didn't intend uh, his first film to be a commentary about race or for it to popularize Haitian zombies. He didn't know what they were. Another thing Romero did with some of his movies was, was to introduce several intelligent zombies capable of holding and using tools, limited speech, and small bursts of critical thinking. In several of his movies, there are zombies who can um, shoot guns, uh, talk a little bit, um, make decisions, lead other zombies, um, especially in Day of the Dead, which I've seen a little bit of. I enjoyed it. It was a good zombie flick. Romero also introduced the idea of zombies making other zombies. In his films, anyone bitten by a zombie or any other exchange of fluids is turned into another zombie. Now, here's a part that I um, I added in and I forgot to edit. So I did end up finding a copy of Dawn of the Dead. Uh, it's on YouTube, if anybody is curious, um, who doesn't already have it on DVD. It's on YouTube. Uh, so yeah, I watched it with my girlfriend and I was right. It does hold up. I'm going to take a moment to hear to give it the praise it deserves. The movie is cheesy, like most movies from the late 70s. The wardrobe is questionable. The zombies are obviously wearing face paint to make them look dead. But the story is so oddly compelling. A group of survivors create a small community within a shopping mall 
which uh, serves as a symbol of American consumerism during the late 70s and 80s, the height of mall culture. Zombies and raiders find the mall and try to get in, mimicking rabid consumers lining up and causing destruction during Black Friday. The audience comes to care about the four main characters because of several scenes of them being human, shopping, having silly montages, and kidding around with each other. This makes it even more devastating when some of them die and become the creatures they are trying to survive. Man, I was... When I say devastated, I was devastated. I... One of the characters that I really liked turned into a zombie. And it wasn't fun. I I genuinely felt sad. And... I mean, good job, Romero, for creating a film that is compelling and makes me care about the characters, but... Come on, Romero. I cared about those characters. This is your fault that I'm sad. Um, but I highly recommend this movie if you're into classic horror flicks, especially if you want to have a good time. Me and my girlfriend were laughing most of the time because of some of the cheesier stuff, but we were also heavily impacted by the death of some of these characters. Uh, John Russo, the other man involved in Night of the Living Dead, wanted to make more movies, but he disagreed with Romero on the direction in which to take the other movies. Uh, Russo ended up making his own series of movies, which are referred, referred to as the Living Dead movies, while Romero's are just the Dead movies. Return of the Living Dead is a 1985 film, and the reason why zombies are always after brains. Fun fact. One of the differences in Romero's and Russo's project is that in Return of the Living Dead, zombies have uh, more speech and are often groaning for brains. Uh, there's, there's this really famous scene where this melting face zombie is, is coming after this, this person in the movie and it's just going, brains. And that's where the whole thing started. That's amazing, isn't it? Now you know. Now you know why zombies want brains. The Living Dead series wasn't nearly as successful as Romero's series, but the first movie is no less influential to zombie culture. So, with the success of Romero's and Russo's movies, zombies became staples in cultures all around the world, although America was the epicenter of the spreading tide of walking corpses. Since the beginning of Romero films, zombies have changed and shifted into several categories that can be broken down. Uh... Thanks to Dale Thomas for his blog post, The Eight Different Types of Zombies on Medium.com. I'll be using these eight categories to qualify and discuss the ways in which zombies have been changed and made unique. So, thank you, Mr. Thomas, uh, for this template. So, our first category is the Haitian zombie, which we've already talked about. The Haitian zombie is a reanimated corpse brought back by voodoo rituals and black magic. There's nothing really scientific about these monsters. They're purely constructions of supernatural means. These zombies don't really have the urge to eat people. They're mostly just used for work and violence, whatever their master is into at the moment. These zombies have usually been symbols of race relations in Haiti and haven't been popular for some time just based on their controversial origins. Uh, next, we have Soulless Flesh, which is most associated with George A. Romero's work. These zombies are walking corpses uh, without what once made them human. They're hungry for flesh, but that's about it. They're very slow, and they often lack critical thinking skills, and something is definitely wrong with them. 
Another example of Soulless Flesh that Thomas uses is the monster from monsters from H.P. Lovecraft's Herbert West Reanimator. Uh, I've read this story, and honestly, there are parts of it that are bone chilling. If you've never read any H.P. Lovecraft, I highly suggest it. Um, him, he, it, some of his stories are less good just because um, he makes the monsters so cosmic and unable to be understood but the ones that are more down to earth like this one are so good the uh this frankenstein-esque mad scientist herbert west gets freshly dead people and brings them back to life with a scientific compound of some sort the people do move and breathe again but they're not the same as they were they have the urge to kill and they eventually get revenge on their creator for bringing them back I guess they wanted to stay dead, and that's really the natural order of things, so good on them. The third category is demonic possession, which isn't as common in movies and books, with one huge exception. The Evil Dead franchise from Sam Raimi is another series of horror movies which has influenced the horror genre, starting with the first movie in 1981. A group of friends goes to a cabin in the woods far from any civilization. They find what they figure out is the... Sumerian Book of the Dead, the Necronomicon Ex Mortis, which they read from like a bunch of idiots, and the trouble starts. Uh, people get possessed by ancient demons and become deadites, which are essentially zombies that have supernatural powers and have mid to high intelligence. They don't really want to eat anyone, but they will if they have to. They're more into killing for fun rather than necessity and torture. Uh, they're just as creepy as regular zombies, if not more so, because they're sort of demon zombies, which is two things combined that don't need to be combined for a happy life. Uh, fourth, and perhaps most famously, is zombies spawning from a viral infection. These zombies are not necessarily dead, but their bodies have been affected by a viral infection. The zombies in World War C, Z, were caused by a virus called Solanum, which started somewhere in China, a lot like certain other pandemics I can think of. The virus kills and commandeers an infected person's body within 10 to 12 seconds in the movie, but it takes a bit more time in the book, which is, frankly, my favorite zombie book of all time. The freakiest things about these zombies and what makes them the scariest in my mind is their speed and their tendency to swarm. Fast zombies have always been have been used in movies and books for years now, but the running dead in World War Z always make my skin crawl. One of the most disturbing scenes in the movie is when zombies climb over a massive wall surrounding Jerusalem. Now, the thing that alerts these ghouls um, is sound. Uh, so the people in Jerusalem are having a huge party and making a lot of sound, so the zombies climb over each other and get up the wall um, and then pour into the city, and the people of Jerusalem just don't stand any chance, uh, and they're doomed to a horrific fate. Another viral zombie infection in video games and movies is the T or Tyrant virus from Resident Evil. Now, Resident Evil has 12 main games with an overarching story, but there are many more games in the series, including remakes and remasters. The virus causes most people to become a pretty regular zombie, slow, rotting, and with the ability to spread the virus, and usually killable with a headshot. 
The real horrific things within the games are the mutations. The T-virus is given to animals, plants, and people, making giant monstrosities with pretty obvious weak points, but also incredible strength. The first game in the series is one of my favorite horror games because of the atmosphere, uh, the fixed camera angles. You can't move the camera to see where you're going. And the survival horror themes, which it really pioneered. Of course, with massive acclaim and success, this series was going to get movies, which have been less successful, but they're still good for campy horror nights with friends. Uh, Fifth is Parasitic Infections, which admittedly I know very little about. In a movie called Night of the Creeps, teenagers are infected by alien slugs, which crawl inside their brains and control their actions, which would constitute a zombie, I guess. What's really creepy about this category is that several real organisms exist in the world we live in, which can take control of and change the attributes of other organisms in order to spread themselves and propagate the species. For instance, Leucochloridium paradoxum, or the green-banded brood sac. This tiny parasitic worm is nature's answer to a zombie. It lives in bird poop, which is eaten by snails. When the snail partakes in said bird poop, it becomes infected with the parasite, which grows inside the snail, eventually replacing the snail's eye stalks, which is horrific. It then proceeds to control the snail, uh, its movement, into wandering out into the open, and then pulsates like a caterpillar in the snail's eye stalks. Now, birds see this, and they eat the brood sack and the snail, which then lays eggs inside of the bird, which isn't really affected at all, and the process starts again. This kind of biological puppetry isn't, you know, exactly zombification, and the green-banded brood sack poses no threat to humans, but I still think it's really creepy how this organism can take over other organisms and control their movements. Fungal zombies are similarly based on real-life organisms, uh, namely cordyceps, a type of fungus with hundreds of variations, which most of which exist only to take over the body of one specific type of bug, like different species of ants, spiders, and caterpillars. Cordyceps poses no threat to people in the real world, but the intense and violent world of The Last of Us answers the question of what if they were. Now let me tell you, it's not a what if that I would want to happen. In The Last of Us, human bodies are taken over by the aggressive fungus, which turns them into infected, not zombies. Um, On the set of The Last of Us, people weren't allowed to say zombies. Uh, They're infected. They're different. Um, But they're dead people that walk or sometimes run around and try to spread their disease through bites or scratches. So they sound like zombies to me. Something that's sort of unique to The Last of Us is one of the scariest species of zombie in media. Clickers are infected people that have massive fungal formations covering their eyes, so they're effectively blind. They aren't fumbling around in the dark, however. They've learned to use echolocation, like bats, to bounce sound off of objects to create pictures of their surroundings from sound waves. The only ways to kill these things in the games are to shoot them a bunch of times in the face, or, more effectively, to sneak up silently and slowly behind them and attack their weak spots at the back of their heads. It's pulse-pounding every time. Cybernetic zombies aren't really new in media, but they're often products of the future. Um, Usually, cybernetic zombies don't want to consume human flesh, but 
spread technology to ev- infect everything they can. That's their main goal. Star Trek boasts one of the most famous species of cybernetic zombies called the Borg, whose whole goal is to spread their cybernetic enhancements and knowledge throughout the universe. But their methods of doing this are morally questionable at best. The Borg implants cybernetic enhancements that connect the new hosts to a massive single-minded network. I believe that this zomb- this version of zombification is curable, but it's difficult. I don't really know much about the Borg, since I haven't seen much Star Trek, but from what I read, they're basically zombies, if not a little bit different. Finally, uh, Dale Thomas, uh, the author of this blog, has created an other category for all of the zombies which don't really conform to any particular category. The one example I thought of right away for this category is from my favorite author, Stephen King. His story, Cell, is an apocalypse situation started by a massive blast from every cell phone on the planet, which turns everyone who hears it into a mindless, violent version of themselves. These quote-unquote phoners are like rabid people, but they don't really eat folks for hunger, more so just for the sake of violence. They all share a telepathic link, and they have a leader, the rackety man, who can talk with the protagonists through their dreams. There is a possible cure for the cell phone psychosis, which the protagonists hope will work, but the book ends before we can get a definitive answer. Another zombie type that doesn't really conform to any of the previous categories are ghouls from the Fallout series. These are people who have been affected by nuclear radiation and are affected in one of two ways. Either they are made feral and attack anything they can see, or they are irrevocably changed in the way of all ghouls, dry, leathery skin, and little to no facial features. Essentially, they look like exposed muscles, but these people retain their human personalities and can live for hundreds of years thanks to the radioactivity. Ghouls are some of the weaker enemies in the games, but when they run at you, intending harm, they can be freaky. Ghouls don't spread the condition of ghoulism. All of the ghouls are products of massive amounts of radiation, either from the initial bombs dropping or residual effects in the world. (sighs) Now, Disney has tried the zombie genre with a three-film franchise called Zombies, and I haven't seen any of them. Shocker, right? And you know what? I have no compulsion to. I've seen the trailers, which are about zombie teenagers at a zombie high school, and... They make me want to reduce Cinderella's castle to rubble. I want to see every Disney princess cry. I want to slap Walt Disney's frozen corpse in the face. I want to go under Disney World in those tunnels that the cast members used to get around. And I want to find his frozen body. And I, was, I want to say, why? Why did you let this happen, huh? That was a good genre. Why would you ruin it like that? Ridiculous. Are, all, are these all of the zombies that have appeared in the genre? No. There are hundreds of other examples, but quite frankly, we don't have the time to discuss them all. One thing that I would like to end on uh, is one zombie series that has taken over virtually all forms of media. The Walking Dead started as a graphic novel by Robert Kirkman in 2003. Side note, Robert Kirkman is my favorite uh, graphic novel author of all time. Stephen King is the regular author of all time that I like the best. Uh, So the series started in 2003. The TV show first aired in 
aired in 2010, and the first The Walking Dead video game from Telltale came out in 2012. Since the beginnings of all of these massively successful ventures, they have spawned sequels, prequels, and spinoffs, such as the not-as-successful television show Fear the Walking Dead, and several other live-action series, including several series still in the works. The series has been going on for what feels like forever, and the zombies have become, frankly, a backdrop for what is truly important in the zombie apocalypse. The people. More dangerous than slow-moving dead creatures are thinking, feeling people. The most devastating deaths in the series come from other people. Now, to end. Humans are capable of great good and great evil, which makes them infinitely more dangerous than an organism whose only real purpose is to spread itself to other organisms, even if the spread involves death. The ability to plan, to make relationships, to be conscious of one's actions is an integral part of being alive. The choices we make allow us to be more than the bag of guts walking around and eating. Listener, I want you to remember that. You are more than a mindless corpse. You are an individual that deserves to live life the way that makes you happy. Don't let people reduce you to anything less than what you are. And have a great week. Thanks for listening. And it's whatever. Bye.